0: Now, we're going to do, as Mark said, the same basic thing, but we're just going to rearrange some of the parts this morning. And so I'll let you know what that looks like as we go through. But, and don't worry, we we aren't going to, I'm not going to get all Anglican on you. I I am going to do one Anglican thing though. And we're going to do that right now, and then we've got that out of the way. So it's the introductory response, right? I say, the Lord be with you, and you respond, very good, and that'll, that'll cover it. Okay, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. And as Mark already prayed, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear the voice of your spirit. Meet us at our point of need. Give us wisdom and grace to draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Go ahead, be seated. It, 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 it is always a bad deal to have your name at the end of the alphabet when you've got a whole series of awards to give out, isn't it? Because the the, the initial applause for those at the front end, it's always enthusiastic and then, by the time you get to Andrew Wiebe and Emma Uden, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, we have to. So, <laughs> but you, you, we had a sustaining sort of plaque here that, that carried it through all the way. So <laughs> congrats to you folks for helping those at the end of the alphabet feel included. All right. Divine drama, patriarchs, prophets, and apostles. What we're going to do is continue the story, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. And we're going to intersperse scripture with song, with narration throughout. So there's not going to be a whole big block of singing, um, but there will be singing. And hopefully the songs will match the narrative as we go. I'm really getting an echo here. Is that, is that just me or is that happening out there? Okay, it's just me. <laughs> All right. So it's always a good idea, rather than jumping right into the story, to do a bit of a recap. Where have we been to this time? So here's the recap. Here is the story so far, and a few key words to sum up various portions of it. We have things like calamity, or creation, calamity, and covenant. We've got cal- Creation in the fact that we see God's good word, world at the start of the story. And then calamity upon calamity. The sin of Adam and Eve, banishment from the garden. And then sin compounded. The murder of Abel by Cain, compounded by the, the cynical murders of Lamech, his descendant. And then things get so bad and God says, enough, let's do a do-over. And so the earth is purged by flood but that doesn't seem to advance the it doesn't seem to advance or be a solution and so we see the story of the tower of babel and again god having to intervene against or to in a sense save humankind from being their own worst enemy and yet in the dispersal of the nations the confusion of language God comes in his grace to a person, to Abraham, and he announces to Abraham both a blessing and a promise, a blessing of nationhood, of land, and a promise that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see the beginning of the covenant mission of God. And yet, it's a covenant that goes off the rails so repeatedly bad, doesn't it? It's just, we, we have this dysfunctional family. And even though there are always faithful ones to sort of save the family, it's constantly in peril. And so all of, before they know it, they're down in Egypt as slaves. God bring, raises up Moses, a prophet, to bring them out of slavery into the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, and yet again, there is fearfulness. There is a whole lot of getting Israel out of Egypt. That was the easy part. But getting Egypt out of Israel is a considerably bigger project. I mean, think about it, 400 years of constant exposure to idolatry and the practices of of Egypt's religious life. It's not going to be purged in one generation. Those are deeply embedded habits in the very cultural fabric of Israel as they come out of Egypt. And even with the miraculous deliveries and the the profound miracles, the habits of Israel remain very deeply entrenched. And God is patient with them. And so he brings Moses to lead them, to prepare them to enter the promised land. He raises up Joshua, to lead them into the promised land. And we see Joshua, through his faithfulness, we see conquest and then the portioning out of the land. And yet, it starts going off the rails yet again. The people abandon God for local idols. They become prey to the plunderers of the surrounding nations. And then they cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge who delivers them, the judge dies, and then the cycle repeats. And last week, Dr. Gary Schmidt talked about that repeated cycle and just the, the, the slide into despair. And it, and it seems that each Time the judge comes around, the, response, the collective renewal of Israel is less and less and less. There's sort of a law of diminishing returns. And when Israel is not fighting the oppressed, the opposing nation, they very quickly fight each other. And by the end of the book of Judges, we arrive at a point of abject wretchedness. This law of diminishing returns, each cycle of judgment, less effective in bringing the people back for a more sustained period of time to covenant faithfulness, to the point where you get to a judge like Samuel. Yes, he's fighting the enemy, but he's also sleeping with the enemy, right? And it seems that that's indicative of Israel's state as well. They seem to have made their peace with the Philistines to the point where they're willing to turn over Samson to him just to keep the peace. And so we end the book of Judges. This is where the story brings us now to the present state. Things like civil war, anarchy, rape, abduction, and a great word to to sum it all up, moral turpitude. It's a great word for a terrible thing. It's defined as just unmitigated moral evil. And that's where the story ends to that point. But there's a glimmer of hope, isn't there? And again, the book of Ruth signals that in the midst of all this downturn, in the midst of all this despair, there are people who are faithful. In the midst of this, we see a glimmer of hope in the, in the couple of Ruth and Boaz. We, see, we hear Naomi's lament, The Lord has dealt harshly with me. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter. And yet, God, there's a, there's a delightful irony here that God finds his faithful ones not in the midst of the residents, but through the outsider, through Ruth, who, through her commitment to Naomi, is able to bring about the saving grace of God's salvation purposes. She marries Boaz, she has a son named Obed, Servant of God. So that's our recap. And so we come to chapter one, beginning of 1 Samuel. And it, like Naomi, it begins on a note of despair. This is Israel under the judges. And it's one particular family, Elkanah and his two wives, Panina and Hannah. And where Panina is the one who has all sorts of kids and is just seen as having the blessing of God on her. It's Hannah, who has no children, who is barren, who is just in despair. And every year they take the annual trip to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, to come and worship. And despite Elkanah's best efforts to comfort his wife, it's Penina's constant, pervasive, mocking and accusations and taunting that just eat away at Hannah. Until she is so desperate, she pleads with God. She goes to the tabernacle. She is in such despair that Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. And she pleads with God to, for just one son. But it's not just the son. The plea is for God to remember her. Let's sing about that. Let's sing about our need for God to remember us.
1: We sing.
2: Lord I come.
1: Lord I come. I come.
0: brings us to chapter 2, the seer. For those of you who don't know what a seer is, it's simply a prophet. But I was looking for S words to nicely alliterate everything. And so, hence you get seer instead of prophet. So we go from supplication to the seer being born. Samuel is the child of blessing, the child the Hannah's desperate prayer and the answer to that desperate prayer. And so Samuel is born to Hannah, and faithful to her vow, she dedicates him to the Lord's service. And her prayer of plea, her plea of desperation from chapter one turns into a hymn of praise. Brooke, come ahead.
2: heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors... The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord says poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, he seats them with princes, and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. If this sounds vaguely familiar, where are we going to hear this again? Where where are the sort of the forward echoes of Hannah's song pointing us? Mary, right? So we see that this is kind of the gospel before the gospel. And let's share in Hannah's joy, and let's sing together. Come And so the hope of Israel is born in Samuel. Samuel is not simply a seer, but he also plays a role as priest and judge. He is an intercessor. He is, in a sense, a Christ figure that points ahead to the one to come. And here's the summation of Samuel's ministry. At chapter 3, at the end, of verse 19, we read, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And it's not a pure sort of upward and onward success story. Samuel is born to Israel in tempestuous times. And we we see that in in a bizarre story where the existing priesthood of Eli and sons has so degenerated in their understanding of who God is that in their ongoing fight of liberation against the surrounding Philistines, They're willing to use the ark as a kind of a talisman. They're they're willing to simply sort of say, well, if God's ark is holy, he would never, never abandon his ark. We need it then. We'll bring it into battle to fight the Philistines, believing that God will somehow be obligated to go to war for them, even though they have not changed their ways, even though, in a sense, their hearts are from him. And so they take the ark from Shiloh into battle. Eli's sons are killed. The ark is taken captive. It resides in the temple, in the Philistine temple, God of Dagon for a while. And it seems apparent that God doesn't need looking after or God cannot be manipulated by his priestly people. Dagon's statue falls down. The Philistines are afflicted with all sorts of tumors and diseases. And the irony is that the Philistines figure out that Israel's God is in fact holy and that this ark needs to go back. Where Israel's ears have just become hard and dull and they don't perceive God at work in their midst, the Philistines figure it out. And so they send the ark back. At the news of the ark's capture, Eli's daughter-in-law goes into labor and gives birth to a son. And as she is dying, she, she cries out the name of the son, Ichabod. You know, the glory has departed. And so again, there seems to be a bit of a new low here. Israel, bereft not only of a leader, a judge, but also the ark. And we know that God can look after his own. And when the ark is ultimately returned, even then, some of the locals don't get it. To them, the ark is something of a curiosity. And they look inside it, something that even the Levites were forbidden to do. And it results in the death of 70 of them. And it's at this low point when it just seems that, that Israel is on the verge of total destruction. That's Samuel steps into his vocation as Israel's judge, God exercising deliverance through him. In 1 Samuel 7, we read, Then Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, the astartes from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So Israel, put away the Baals, the Astartes, and serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid. And the Israelites said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, your God, for us, and pray that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. All the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down beyond beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Jeshana and named it Ebenezer. For he said, thus far has the Lord helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And so from Ichabod, we go to Ebenezer. Samuel sets up a memorial to honor God. Thus far has the Lord helped us. Maybe finally Israel is headed in the right direction But then, when it all seems to be going so well, we come to chapter 3. The dissatisfied subjects. The failure of sustained faithfulness is once again present in Israel. This time, Samuel's efforts to establish a kind of spiritual continuity through his own family is no different than previous efforts. We see the failure of Samuel's sons. They're willing to take bribes. They're willing to use their office and standing as priests in the community to advance their own selfish agenda. They pervert justice, and Israel's tribal leaders at this point won't stand for it. Andrew, come ahead and tell us about it.
3: I will be reading from 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 to 22. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, Obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Be careful what you ask for. It's a bit of an ominous passage, isn't it? And, and yet, God is gracious. God's grace in spite of our distrust. And so in response for the demand of the elders to give us a king, Samuel warns them what's in store for them. When they desire a king to be so that they will be like other nations so that he can fight their battles for them. It's kind of ironic who has fought the battles for Israel so far. It hasn't been their kings or even their judges to that extent that they could claim credit. It's been God's doing. And yet, they want a king who can fight their battles for them. And yet, as you catch it, as as Andrew read, you know what this king is going to be like, it's going to be a king who will take from them. He will be defined by what he extracts, by what he takes, not what he gives. And so the people are warned at the same time. And God, in his graciousness, provides the kind of king they desire. Not the one of his choosing. God is not opposed to kingship. That's going to be in the plans. But his king is to be a different kind of king, not one like the nations around him. But for the time being, that's what he's going to give them. Chapter 4. The insufficient sovereign. The one who is king, again, proves disappointing. It's a promising start. Saul is anointed. He's confirmed as king. He even looks the part. He's tall. He's impressive. He has a physical presence. He even has a bit of a charisma, even though he's at first shy, But then he kind of grows into the part. It's interesting to note that publicly, he is chosen by lot. And I know that was a common way of determining God's will. But the only time we've heard about that in previous encounters with that mode of decision-making was when Achan is singled out by lot for judgment. Bit of an ominous thing there, right? he's anointed by Samuel and it says god's spirit rushed on him it's the same way that describes god's spirit coming on Samson it comes on him for a time but it doesn't seem sustainable and yet god changed Saul's heart and yet Saul did not respond to such a generous invitation Samuel proceeds to teach the people the rights and duties of kingship. He gives them a constitution. And in the first call of danger, Saul is able to rally the people and to go out and fight the Ammonites to free the people of Jabesh-Gilead from an Ammonite king, King Nahash, who seems to be a rather nasty bit of work, has a tendency to gouge the right eye out of his captives and those he subjugates. And so it's off to a good start. And this is a reason... For praise, he delivers the Ammonites into Saul's hand. Let's sing about God's deliverance.
2: Please stand.
0: One, two, three. One, two, three. Chapter 5, promising start, again, seems to end up in failure. And, and we hear both the sorrow of God and his prophet, Samuel. Samuel knows that Saul is not the people's choice, and yet he's invested in Samuel, and he cares for him, and he, he grieves when Samuel fails the Lord. And he's willing to take, or when Saul fails the Lord, and he's willing to take Saul back because Saul will sometimes confess when he's sort of cornered like a trapped rat in his own lies. And, and he'll, he'll confess because it's expedient, but he'll never, never be receptive to Samuel's correction. It's the one thing that's going to separate Saul from the one To whom the kingship goes, namely David, who's called a man after after God's own heart. And David isn't perfect. We know that. But he is tender to correction in a way Saul never is. Saul is always, it seems, willing to bend the instructions of Samuel to his own convenience. He's impatient for Samuel to come and carry out his role as judge and priest. It's like he wants to jump in and take all that for himself. And it's especially true when he is told to go annihilate the Amalekites by Samuel. And we see Saul's selfishness, his self-justification, his unwillingness to accept correction and repent, and God grieving, and Samuel crying out. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He has not carried out my commands." Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. He rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and Samuel was told, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. On returning, he he passed down to Gilgal. Samuel puts up monuments to God's honor. Now Saul is putting up monuments to himself. And when Samuel confronts Saul on his latest bending the commandments of God to annihilate not Anni- annihilate the Amalekites. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Keeping their king as a war prize and sparing the best of the livestock, supposedly to sacrifice to gods afterward afterwards. Samuel rebukes Saul: "Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed. Than the fat of rams, for rebellion is no less a sin than divination, and stubbornness is like the iniquity of idolatry. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed against the commandment of the Lord and your, and your words. And I feared the people and obeyed his voice. See this rationalization. Now, therefore, I, pr- I pray, pardon my sin and return with me so I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have, been, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this very day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Moreover, the glory of Israel will not deceive or change his mind, for he is not immortal, that he should change his mind. And so Saul sees the kingdom ripped away. He tears the hem of Samuel's robe. He's grasping for a kingship he cannot have. And from there on, we see Saul's descent into to jealousy, spiritual schizophrenia, and eventually suicide. Which brings us to chapter 6. And what Israel needs is not a sovereign who will make them like all the other people's, They need a savior. And so they're looking for help in all the wrong place. Give us a king that we can be like the nations around us. They're looking at the wrong enemy, the local tribes. They think that defeat of these people is where their liberation lies. And yet, for all practical purposes, they may as well be back in Egypt because they're still slaves, just like their later generations will be during the Roman occupation of Jesus' time. Because the source of their bondage is not political, but the enslavement of their hearts. Enslavement to the power of sin, death, and the devil. They don't need a better political sovereign, but they do need a savior. Later on, I think it's Ezekiel that promises the hearts of stone being replaced with hearts of flesh. So God won't give up on them. He will install his king, a man after his own heart. Even this won't be sufficient, but at least through David's line, we know a savior will come, a true king, not like the arrogant Saul, not who takes and who grasps, but a king who is willing to, To give, a suffering servant, a seeking shepherd, a self-sacrificing savior. And so, where Saul grasped Samuel's garment to hang on to it for himself, we see in Luke's gospel another encounter with a hem of a garment. In Luke 8:42 to 48, as Jesus is going along to heal a young girl. A woman who has been disease-ridden for years and years reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. And Jesus is the one who gives healing. He doesn't grasp from her. He gives her what he needs to make her whole. That's the invitation. So as we close this morning... We'll sing Amazing Grace. And let's think about perhaps where we need to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Let's sing. go forward to the day walking in the grace of God, you are dismissed.